0: Like I, hold your head up high till you find the blue bird of happiness. You will find greater peace of mind knowing there's a blue of happiness. And Uh, Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club and I am going to be continuing my look at Dick's 1962 novel The Man in the High Castle. So without uh, wasting too much time to get you up to speed I I just want to encourage you to listen to the previous three episodes where I explored the first half of The Man in the High Castle in quite a bit of detail. Um, But it's a novel if you don't know, it's a novel set in a world in which the Axis have won the Second World War. Japan has occupied the East Coast of the United States. And most of the novel is set in, in San Francisco and in and, and Colorado uh, in the West. It's all in the Japanese territory. But we do learn a lot about the German world. In fact, much of the novel is dealing with German politics in the middle of a, of a transition. Um, Bormann, the head of the Reich after Adolf Hitler, basically went insane, has just died, and then there's a secession crisis. There's a German spy in San Francisco uh, going as the name of Baines, pretending to be a Swedish businessman uh, and trying to make contact with the Japanese. Although he says he's there for business purposes, he's actually got a a deeper purpose that we start to learn about by the midpoint of the novel. Other characters include a Mr. Childan, who runs an antique store, and uh, Frank Frink, uh, a person... Uh, with the Jewish background who was hiding his identity and he was just fired from his job and then he blackmailed his boss by exposing that essentially putting out trolling him by by showing that his telling others that his fake antiques aren't that good aren't that effective and through that he was able to get uh, a few thousand dollars to start his own jewelry making business uh, we meet uh one of the officials of the Japanese government in San Francisco, Mr. Togami, and a few other uh, minor characters. And they all have narratives that intersect, although they're all sort of doing their same thing. Another character we meet is Juliana, who is Frank Frink's wife, who Frank misses very much and still has deep feelings for. And she's in California. And as we meet her, she's uh, kind of like a yoga instructor, like a gym uh, athletic trainer of some sort. And after... After work, she goes to a, a diner, meets some truckers, picks you know basically hooks up with one, I mean an Italian named Joe, and takes him home. Through her conversation, through other characters' conversation, we learn that there's a new book that's been released called *The Grasshopper Lies Heavy*, which has a world in which the Allies won the Second World War. So it's kind of the opposite, the inverse of *The Man in the High Castle*, except that world that's described in that book is not the world that we live in. So it's just because it's not, it's not a the grasshopper lies have is describing our world is describing a different uh, reality in which the allies won uh, the first world war if you read the dark tower novels you kind of understand this idea that there's kind of multiple uh, multiple parallel universes because that watch all a little bit uh, different here and there and, and it's that kind of thing is going on with with this now the theme of this novel through and through is what is real and how do we identify it? And how, how do we have any ground for like really determining if something is real? It's played with early in the story with this question of antiques. You know, it doesn't matter if an antique is is really old or if it's a fake old, right? As long as it has that, what, what's called, one character calls historicity to it. And the only way to prove if something's real is this piece of paper that's external to the item itself. So what is there within the item itself that proves it's, it's false? It, it really doesn't exist unless you kind of go at it scientifically so but there's also characters who put on different masks and play with their identity like frank frank who changes his identity to avoid being um, identified as a jew we have undercover agents of different governments we have one one man who's talked about but we don't meet yet is coming from japan and he's an old man and he's he's we're told that he's a like a like an old businessman who's basically consulting for a small fee. In fact, he's an important Japanese government official. So on and on, there's there's nothing really solid here. And on top of all, this is this question of, is the world they live in the world they really live in, right? Or is that also fake? So identity is being played with all the time. There's very few characters who are what they present themselves as, or at various times in the story, even if they're fairly honest about who they are, they put on different masks and they put on different identities. So it's a very fluid novel in that way. It's not particularly plot heavy. As much as there's a plot, it really has to do with uh, this German transition and how it affects some members of the Japanese government active in San Francisco and you know besides that kind of the characters even though they intersect are sort of doing their own thing and this is a common trope that dick does in a lot of his 1960s novels where he'll have a lot of characters in a world that's fairly well defined but each of their plot lines are, are kind of going in different directions and especially like in novels like the simulacrum where you just have a lot thrown on the on the table and you know it's hard to kind of dissect what the clear plot is, and this is his first novel that really does that. His previous novels, even to the degree they're playing with different ideas, had a much more straightforward story. This one, this one, it's it's when you even when you read it a few times, you're just you're trying to get a grip of what this story is trying to tell. It's, it's actually one of the reasons I was surprised to see people try to adapt this into a, a TV series. And as far as I know, the TV series it plays with this theme of of the Nazi occupied America but really doesn't get into a lot of his other philosophy that's what I've heard anyways Um, so I guess that's disappointing but it is what it is I haven't seen it myself so anyways again I I, I spent three episodes where I talked about the first eight chapters of of this novel I don't know if I'm going to do three more or two more I'll see how it goes I'm going to talk about a couple chapters and if I have time I'll I'll do a couple more Um, because I, I think at this point you know, I I can kind of maybe go a little quicker through through the rest of the novel, so maybe I can get through with this in in two episodes. I'm I'm not sure. We'll just see how it goes. So I'm going to pick up with chapter nine. So again, if you haven't read the novel or if you're reading along with me, go back and listen to my first two episodes before you jump into this one. So chapter nine picks up with Frank Frink and his. Uh, partner ed mccarthy and they've been really trying to establish this jewelry making business and the real fad in at least among the japanese occupiers the people with money and power and the ability to kind of spend gratuitously on on consumer items is antiques and kind of kitschy american artifacts i almost want to criticize here nostalgia I'm, i'm really tempted to talk about this current wave of nostalgia we see in, in American popular culture. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, people my age, you know, people in their around 40 tend to look back at the 80s with a bit of nostalgia. And we have, you know, films and TV series that really exploit that and take advantage of that. And, I, you know, I don't want to say it's bad necessarily, but it seems Dick here... Suggests there's something a bit inauthentic about kind of living in the past. What's different about these Japanese elite is they're not kind of going back to a past they knew. They're they're going they're they're interested in the American past and the kitschy kind of artifacts of the previous the pre-war generation in another in a country that's not their own. And I don't quite fully know how to interpret that. I've never seen much in my life outside of maybe some academics of a nostalgia for a culture that's completely foreign to them usually nostalgia comes out of people remembering their own past and their own experiences and anyways but it is what it is um but what ed, ed, what ends up being called ed frank custom jewelry they just join their names together is they're trying to make original jewelry they're trying to make something you know new that's not going to really fit in that market, but they're hoping to do something that other people aren't doing and, and create a new market for themselves. And then we get a lot of detail about how they start their business, the, the kind of the, the metals they buy to make it. And there's a lot of focus here on just how hard Ed McCarthy and Frank Frink work at quality and really trying to make a good impression and making everything handmade and making everything very precise and, and using good you know, quality materials and things like that because they know they're kind of punching upwards in their efforts to try to try to get up uh get their get their business going and there's a lot of doubts of how successful they'll be even our main character one of our main characters frank uh, you know likes to use the I jing for divination and his divination on his this business was a little bit ambiguous so he has a few doubts too just in a kind of a spiritual way about where the future of his this business is but i do think there's a, a point that dick's trying to make here in focusing on uniqueness and and value and quality versus nostalgia right I, if you you know there was an earlier scene in the novel where children tried to sell to his japanese uh customer like a first edition comic book or something which he thought was really valuable and he ended up not wanting that and he ended up buying instead like a cheap mickey mouse watch which is really something kind of crappy and you know it's got nostalgia it's got kitschiness to it but it doesn't it didn't have real value and children was a bit bothered by that both because it was, wasn't as much of a sale it seemed but also because you know it did, he didn't seem to appreciate the, the true value of things and this is going to be a thing that comes up later on in this part of the novel when we we meet this character children again um so he Anyways, Frank consults to I Ching again. And during this whole time where he's thinking about... He's got this anxiety about this business. He starts to think a lot about Juliana. And he thinks, well, maybe she can be a model. And, you know, he's kind of wishful thinking that maybe he can get Juliana into this business and maybe kind of reacquaint her, himself with her. But then he kind of thinks back about kind of what a failure he is and how she wouldn't really want him. And she he can. He He ends up deciding just to take a few of the cheaper pieces that that he made, the ones that don't have silver and gold in it, and send send them to Juliana as kind of a gift. And that's the best he can do. Now, it seems that Frank is a better salesperson than Ed McCarthy, but Frank can't go to Children's Store, and that's where they don't want to start trying to sell this, at Children's Store, because I guess the store is successful. They don't want to go there because Frank had earlier gone there as part of his... Um, basically um his blackmailing attempt at his former boss and his children would have would have recognized him if he came in because he came in with a fake identity so it has to be ed who does it and there's some anxiety about how effective ed will be at selling the product a lot more moping on juliana in this section and overall, just this this overall fear of failure that that Frank feels, and Frank is presented from the beginning of this novel to the end as a failure. And I, I think he's a good example of kind of this colonized mentality, the the feeling of a defeated person. There there are other characters who are much more. I don't know. I'm kind of hesitant to use the term, but kind of Uncle Tomish and their attitude towards the Japanese. And there's a lot of people who kind of serve the Japanese, you know, in various. Um, positions as servants or people or like children servicing their, the products that they want to get like being basically salespeople to the japanese frank he's got more much more of a chip on his shoulder and he really can't accept that and he's striving to create an independent business for himself as a way to avoid that but he still is overcome with this feeling of failure and this comes deep down to you know the failure of the united states to win the war the eradication of his people the fact that he's forced to change his identity and and live his life as a non-jew all these are just different layers of the failure that this character feels and he he comes off quite pathetic and his story ends with the ultimate failure and we'll get to that in a moment then we get a short section just three or four pages where juliana and joe are on their quest together their quest essentially is to find the man in the high castle to find the man named aberson and this is the man who wrote the grasshopper lies heavy this book that shows this alternate history and you know i guess they don't have much else to do so that's why they're on this this quest we're going to find out again that there's another real reason for this um, quest it it really is not fully about curiosity although it is for juliana Um, this character joe has another reason for doing it um, we get a little bit of talk, little talk here about her work as as basically like this a sports advisor. She works in a gym, kind of yoga instructor. I, I keep imagining her as a yoga instructor, but I'm not, I don't think he ever quite says she's a yoga instructor. But she's kind of that kind of, that kind of, that sort of figure. Um, now she does notice that he has this knife, and and he kind of you know explains it away. But they have a very interesting. I think relationship and in one level, it's kind of a relationship of equals. Joe had served with the axis. Juliana is, is an American and she's living in Colorado in part to be away from both the Japanese and the German occupation. She's got a lot of feelings, but she's very political and they're able to talk about politics kind of on the level of equals. And you can kind of grasp their, their attraction and you, and you see what she sees in Joe is what Frank, her, her husband, I guess, ex-husband or husband i don't know if they're still married how you know what he seems to lack especially in his kind of in that kind of the bitterness he has joe's much more a person who's able to kind of do de- on the surface at least to deal with the changes in the life and some of their conversations are, are really enjoyable i think and, and some of the highlights of this novel for me oh i guess i see it here i guess she, she teaches judo um so another asian uh, little element of Asian culture there's a lot of that in this novel um, Japanese and Chinese words the I Ching fits in a lot of people recite kind of Asian poetry and so there's all kinds of examples of, of the in fact impact of Asian culture in America after um, the defeat in the war so anyways they, they basically decide to go on this trip to to see Appertson to go on this road trip and And preparing she's she's kind of looking forward to this trip with this man who she she likes and she's hoping that she'll he'll spend some money on her. Um, Then we return to the story of of Ed Ed and Frank specifically Childen's business and Ed comes into the business and well the previous experience he had with the Colt. 44s which were proven to be fakes and got him lost him a big sale or at least he thought he lost a big sale out of this you know makes him a little bit skeptical when this man comes in and wanting wanting to sell this merchandise although children recognizes right away that this stuff is different than what he normally sells that again it's original these products are are not simply kind of kitschy artifacts from the, from the past, you know, not some of the stuff that he's, that the Japanese seem to like, aren't even really true antiques. They're, you know, like the Mickey Mouse watch or, you know, posters and, you know, mass produced crap that because it's a little bit old and there's some nostalgia associated with it. People, this historicity, I guess, attached to it, people seem to want to have it, but a lot of the American characters don't really understand fully the attraction to it children's doing it as a job of course so i i think uh ed mccarthy does a pretty good job with his sales pitch here um basically it's he's offering the store 50 of the of the retail price uh, so they buy it for half the half the retail price Um, But Childen doesn't really bite he he says he'll take a mask on consignment and his justification for this is that it's kind of policy for new products that they're taking on consignment. This is his store though. So it's kind of, you know, it's just his excuse at the time. He sees a lot of advantages in taking it for consignment. He does see the quality in the stuff, but he says there's less risk. He says you'll get two thirds instead of half of the price if you you leave it on consignment. That's what Childen says to to Ed. But the downside is, you know, if anything is stolen, if anything is lost, if there's any kind of spoilage, uh, Ed Frank would take that loss. And then there's no guarantee they're actually going to have any income, right? They have to wait for the stuff to be sold. Um, but eventually, Ed McCarthy leaves the bulk of their material at Children's store, you know, on this consignment Um policy the way children thinks about this is quote there was no way robert Childen could lose he did not have to pay for this man's jewelry he had no investment in this kind of inventory if any of it sold he made a profit and it and if it did not he simply returned it all or as much as could be found to the salesman at some vague later date so he just says take our car take my card you can call back in a month and, and see what's been sold so he goes back to the Ed goes back to the car quite fr- and talks to Frank about this and they're both quite frustrated about this but um, you know, in fact, Frank insisted that they don't allow stores to take their stuff on cons- on, on consignment, but anyways, this is he was talked into it and it's a big, it's another failure for for poor Frank. Oh one other thing, children immediately. He basically steals one of the pieces of jewelry packs it up and he wants to do it as, give it as a gift to this Japanese couple especially this woman in the Japanese couple a Miss Kasura um, and then Mr. Kasura, Paul you know went to the store earlier kind of liked his stuff and befriended children you know invited him over to for dinner and children's going to see them again and so he wanted to have this gift for her so um, he, he also kind of has the hots for for that. Uh, j- Japanese woman quote: uh, Getting a small box plus wrapping paper and ribbon. Robert Childen began preparing a gift for Mrs. Kasura. Dark, attractive woman, slender in her silk Oriental dress, high heels, and so on. Or maybe, t- or maybe today, blue cotton coolie style lounging pajamas, very light and comfortable and informal. Ah, he thought. Anyways, that's that's chapter chapter nine. So we in chapter ten we move from. Frank's anxiety and and feelings of failure and inadequacy, um, with to Baines. Baines is this supposedly Swedish man who's here on business to help. I think it was like the plastics industry. The Japanese wanted to start the plastics industry. He's really here on kind of a more covert uh, mission, but he's very very worried because he hasn't heard about this Japanese contact who's supposed to come that Tagomi told him about. He's kind of coming by boat, so it's not really clear when he's going to get there, and he's very anxious about that. But he's mostly more anxious because of this transition problem in Germany. The death of Bormann has kind of changed the timeline for whatever he needs to do in the United States, um, and especially because Goebbels gets named Reich Chancellor, and he gets the news that Goebbels has been named Reich Chancellor, and that's really bad uh, in Baines's point of view. So he calls Togomi and tries to find out if the the person they're trying to find or they, they want to talk to it has come yet and he hasn't. And so he gets you know pretty he 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 doesn't quite know what to do and he makes a mistake here. He even thinks about just going to Togomi uh directly and telling him what he knows, thinking maybe this This guy—he's old. He's going to die on the way, or you know, he'll be delayed, and there's not really time to to waste. But he does go and and makes contact with uh, another agent there, and there's a kind of the kind of spy versus spy coded conversation they have, and it seems he gets a little bit of information that he needs, that causes some relief. He asked the contact what basically straight up what to do if this Japanese man, Yatabe is his name, doesn't show up. And the man says, "And then he, I'm going to need instructions from Berlin, essentially. And the man says back, like, come back tomorrow. And so he feels better after doing that. But he did kind of expose himself a little bit. So he's, he's got some anxiety about, about that. But overall, he feels better after having made contact with this man who was kind of like a, a worker as a worker in a department store Um, so then we move to a really fascinating conversation between Joe and Juliana like I said these are some of the the most fascinating parts of the novel partially because these are two characters who are both interested in the grasshopper lies heavy and are both reading it like Joe read it before but Juliana is reading it um, fresh and as she learns more about this book and gets more interested in it she often shares her ideas with Joe and they, and they can have kind of intellectual conversations. They can talk about opera. They can talk about politics and economics. They can talk about Different composers they talk about uh, The themes in the novel so it's Okay, but let's try, I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly how to get at this conversation because it's a conversation between them, but it's also between them and the grasshopper lives heavy as the book. So often it's like the book expresses an idea. Juliana shares it and talks it and wants to talk about it. And, you know, and there's some back and forth. And I'll just talk about some of the, the issues that come up in this conversation. It's, it's about, I guess around 10 pages or so. So it's a fairly big chunk of the book, but it's got a lot of great stuff in it. Um, now, one thing we have, we learn is in the world described in the grasshopper lives heavy, it's a world of consumption and mass production. So in many ways, this world is, is not ours. So just to, just because the world in that novel, the novel within the novel has the allies winning, it doesn't mean it's a direct copy of our world. But one thing it does have is kind of the dominance of American consumer culture. And this is a quote from The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. Only Yankee know how in the mass production system, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, the magic names, could have done the trick. Sent that ceaseless and almost wittily noble flood of cheap one dollar, the China dollar, the trade dollar, television kits to every village and backwater of the Orient. And when the kit had been assembled by some gaunt, feverish minded youth in a village, starved for a chance for that which the generous Americans held out to him, that teeny little instrument with its built in power supply, no longer than a marble, beginning to receive. What did it receive? Crouching before the screen, they used in the village, and often the elders as well, saw words, instructions, how to read first, then the rest, how to dig a deeper well, plow a deeper furrow, how to purify the water, heal the sick. Overhead, the American artificial moon wheel distributed the single, carrying it everywhere to all the waiting, avid masses of the East. End quote. Um, so we got this image of America projecting its power via its, its consumer goods, and that the consumer goods delivering actually concrete messages and this is something dick talks about in some of his other works like in a short story called war game where a toy is able to convey ideology Um, and then in some of his earlier stories it's even more banal like where the toaster is actually conspiring against you or the the toys are conspiring against you it's more subtle by the late 50s and early 60s when he tries to describe this but it still comes down to this idea that a consumer good projects power and something you buy has meaning in it and that that meaning translates kind of ideology or messages and so america is selling itself through its capacity to mass produce and we're going to get back to mass production later on in another context and then the next passage of the grasshopper lives heavy that juliana talks about is essentially this this kind of new deal logic that has helped america become what it is in the words it's not necessarily the military superpower that it was in the real world. That's still Britain in in, the, in this novel. But America's powerful in other ways. So I'll, I'll just read the next section here. What had China been yearning? One needful commingled entity looking towards the West, its great democratic president, Chiang Kai-shek, who had led the Chinese people through years of war, now in the years of peace, into the decades of rebuilding. But for China, it was a rebuilding that had almost supernaturally vast flatlands had never been built, lay still slumbering in the ancient dream, arousing, yes, the entity the giant had to partake at last of full consciousness, had to waken into the modern world with its jet airplanes and atomic power, its auto bombs and factories and medicines. And from whence would come the crack of thunder which would rouse the giant, Chang had known that even during the struggle to defeat Japan, it would come from the United States. And in 1950, American technicians, engineers, teachers, doctors, argamists swarming like some new life forms in each province, end quote. Now with slight changes, I mean, this is a, a description of the rise of China in our own world. Actually, this uh, China through its size and its dramatic transformation of its countryside into a modern industrial economy, becoming a world power. The difference is they they've done it on their own, largely. Here, it's really kind of an extension of the American New Deal logic. Now, Joe, now Joe's skeptical of the image that Abnernson presents in the book, The Grasshopper Lies heavy, heavy, saying, you know, he's taken like the good part of Nazism, the socialism, and left out the nationalism, left out the authoritarian state. And he just doesn't buy that that's possible. He thinks you can't have one without the other. You can't have socialism without authoritarianism of some sort. And he says, what you see presented here is utopia. Quote, you imagine if the allies had won, the New Deal would have been able to revive the economy and meet those socialist welfare improvements, like he says. Hell no. He's taking—he's talking about a form of state syndicalism, the corporate state, like we developed under the Duce. He's saying you would have had the good and none of the, and then he's, he's cut off, but the, the idea is that you'd have none of the bad. And in the next section, I'm not gonna read another section right now of it, but in another section of the Grasshopper Lives Have, we have a description again of America rising really as a consumer economic power, while Britain remained kind of an imperial power. And it's a kind of a different way of conceiving of these, of, of a type of empire, essentially. We have the Japanese empire, the greater East Asian Cold Prosperity Spear. We got the German empire. We also have the British Empire, talked about in the novel, and then this kind of American consumer um, empire. And what's the result of this? Well, the result is, according to the author of The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, quote, realization of Napoleon's vision, rational homogeneity of the diverse ethnic strains which had squabbled and balkanized Europe since the collapse of Rome. Vision two of Charlemagne, united Christendom, totally at peace, not only with itself, but with the balance of the world. And yet there remained one annoying sore, Singapore, end quote. Um So this kind of global homogenization comes through mechanization, the machine, consumer culture, mass production, New Deal mechanization, and all that. And, you know, I don't know if he's saying there's really no difference between these empires. I mean, this kind of what... Joe replies, he says, Abderson talks like it's a big issue as to whether the U.S. or Britain ultimately wins out Bull. He ha- He has no merit, no history to it. Six of one, dozen of the other. You either read what the Duce wrote, inspired, beautiful man, beautiful writing. Explains the underlying actuality of every event. Real issue in war was old versus new. Money, that's what... Well, that's why Nazis dragged Jewish question mystically into it versus communal mass spirit, which the Nazis called Gemeinschaft, Folkness, like Soviet commune, right? Only the communists sneaked in Pan-Slavic Peter the Great imperial ambitions along with it, made social reform mean for imperial ambitions. Now, what Joe's here saying, in other words, is it's all the same. What really matters is kind of the progress of the world, right? And one empire or the other, they're, they're all basically going to be the same sort of thing, maybe different ideologies here and there but essentially they're they're the same they don't matter and i I think this is partially dick's point and why dick is writing this um alternate history narrative you know in a sense it doesn't really matter which it is at least at least that's joe's point i'm not fully sure it's dick's point of view he's a little bit yeah he's not dick's not the most open in this novel about what he's after here He talks, though, he does bring up this question of, of historicity, which is something we've met before when talking about artifacts. So the question of, does it matter if an, an antique or an old thing is, is real or not, or a fake that just looks very like it, like it's old. And one of these counterfeiters said, it doesn't matter because what matters is the historicity, which is something that's experiential, right? It, it's kind of in the touch and the feel and the smell of the thing. And that can be faked. Right. What the proof is a piece of paper that's detached from the item and therefore kind of it it becomes kind of meaningless. Then it's it's distant from it and it lacks that piece of paper that proves authenticity doesn't have that historicity. It's in the item itself. Right. Um, But the way Joe sees historicity is well. I guess he really sees this train of history that there's kind of a place the world is going and it doesn't matter that much if it's britain or america or japan or germany that rules the world there's kind of this this train of history to it so i guess in the way that the artifact it doesn't matter if it's fake or real as long as it it is what it is and how it's experienced you know a historical a historical epoch it doesn't matter if it's british or american as long as it it is what it is kind of at the material foundation and the material level So I think that's what he's getting at. Anyway, this is one of these passages. This, it's like a 10 page section that you could read again and again. And I think I always get new insight into It's just such a fascinating conversation they have. And these are such likable characters and they're some of the most likable in in the novel because they're both very free and independent thinking and they're curious and engaged in the world of ideas. Like a lot of other characters don't really have that. Um, Like the other people we see reading The Grasshopper Lies Heavy see it as a problem or you know don't have that same level of engagement with the text and of course they're going off to try to see see the author anyways um the next scene we have is Togomi here learning that this man he's been waiting to come from japan this important government agent who's posing also as a businessman shirjiro yatabe has finally arrived in san francisco and he gets the call, and Tagomi, um, you know, is very happy to hear that. And then he goes and contacts Baines. Baines gets the phone call, and Baines learns that Yatapi has come. And at this point, he rejects having kind of risk breaking his cover by by talking to the agent he talked to before, even though it caused him some reassurance. Had he known Yatapi was going to come. Basically, that night, he wouldn't have done that. Um, but nevertheless, he's he's happy he can move on with his, his mission. And that brings us to the end of, of chapter 11. Sorry, chapter 10. Um, next is chapter 11. But yeah, I think I'm going to wait on chapter 11 and 12 until the next episode. So I, I'm already kind of 35 minutes into this. So I'm going to... Um, Shut down this episode for now and come back. Um, you know, this This is a novel that it's, you know, there's there's so much to talk about. It's it's not like some of his early novels, which you can kind of zip through the plot. And, you know, here it's like in some passages, like almost every line matters. And You could almost do a kind of a line by line analysis, even though I'm not going that detailed. You probably could if, if you wanted to. So, you know, what we have here is, I think, a couple really interesting conversations between Juliana and Joe, about the Grasshopper Lights Heavy, and particularly about the nature of the world and the significance of the fact that a world is being described differently. And is it, you know, the question whether it's plausible or how much would be actually different if America had won the war versus if Germany had won the war? And then the other thing we have i think in this part of the novel is a sense of failure and anxiety in a lot of our characters uh, like incomplete missions ed and ed, ed and frank failing to sell their products get having to make do with consignment baines feeling his mission is falling apart and, and he feels time kind of reaching up to him ed and frank also feel that they don't have time they have to you know they they you know, they have to start making money quick or their project won't succeed. They have to get and get their foot in the door as quickly as possible. So some of our characters are feeling this, this kind of rush, this anxiety. Um, but you know, that those are the main things going on in chapters nine and 10, but they're really good ones. I think they're really important, especially chapter 10 is a, is one of the strongest, um, I guess, intellectually in, in the entire book. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I'll, um, Start getting, you know, start working on part five of my series on the man on the high, on my comments on the man on the high castle. So as always, thanks so much for listening and for supporting this podcast. And if you enjoy it, you can listen to my other Philip Dick content. I've covered all of his writings up to 1962, up to the man on the high castle in earlier episodes. So you can go back and find those or you can follow my podcast for my examination of other American writers. Uh, I'm looking at the Library of America. I've been looking recently at African American writers from the turn of the century, so please uh, check those out as well if you're interested in American writing. So um, I'll be back next time with looking at at least chapters 11 and 12 of *The Man in the High Castle*. I probably won't be able to finish it in just one more episode, so probably two more episodes um, on this on this book. So if you have any of your own comments on *The Man in the High Castle*, uh, please comment on anything I missed. Anything important I misinterpreted or in your opinion got wrong or am looking at backwards, please share your thoughts. You can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com and I'll I'll try to get back to you and address your your comments in in an upcoming episode. So again, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time with part five of my review of the Man in the High Castle by Phil K. Dick. You'll till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.